On today's Bold Alpha, a conversation with Colonel Ange from the Pooch Pit. Bold Alpha is presented by New World from A.J. Fernandez. Draped in a bold, dark Nicaraguan wrapper and jam-packed with ultra-flavorful Nicaraguan fillers, the box press New World delivers medium to full-bodied elegant taste. AJFcigars.com. By the new Camacho Nicaragua. Forged in fire with full frontal flavor. Camacho. Live loud. Available at DavidoffGeneva.com. And by the Gurkha Nicaragua series. Maximum flavor. Full-bodied beauty. The new Gurkha Nicaragua series. GurkhaCigars.com. Welcome to Bold Alpha. It is Alpha Dave, the general and alpha male-in-chief. Today, we have moved Command Center Alpha to the Ford Theater of Operations in a classified location in western New York. We are in the Pooch Pit. Now, for those of you that are new to Bold Alpha, you may not be aware that the colonel in charge of all grilling maneuvers is the great Colonel Ange. For those of you that are longtime Cigar Dave listeners, you know that Colonel Ange has been on the show for about 22, 23 years at our live pleasure fests. Whenever there is an occasion to conduct grilling or smoke-related maneuvers, we always turn to our expert Colonel Ange. And now we are in the pooch pit on a magnificent Western New York day. What a beautiful change from really extremely warm, humid Tampa, Florida, to be here where it is about 78 degrees, no humidity, blue skies. And Colonel Ange, there is some aroma that is wafting around me, and it is not. What cigar did you choose, by the way? I chose the Aging Room Pura Sipa. Puro Sipa, uh, the Aging Room. Very nice. Yes. So, so that's not the aroma of that cigar. It's being overwhelmed by another aromatic scent that happens to be coming from one of the umpteen smokers here in the pooch pit yes sir general what we have going in our uh, smoke vault is a brisket that i started at around four o'clock this morning and should be done around dinner time we got just the flat in there we don't have the entire brisket because there's not a lot of brisket eaters in this house so that's going you're smelling a little bit of apple wood some cherry wood and some oak now wait a minute I know we've called them smokers before. Now it is a smoke vault. Yes, it's a smoke vault. There, the, it, I don't see the Pinkerton or the Brinks guards around the smoke vault, but with that aroma, there should be a, a guard around that. That's why we have the super sniffer, Toby, here, just to guard the vault. The beagle. The yes. beagle yes. I, listen, I would have brought uh, uh, Pendragon's Royal Baron, the canine German Shepherd, who is ready to stand guard because he is 100% carnivore, cigar-friendly, I can tell you one thing, nobody would get near that smoke vault. <laughs> I know I wouldn't. No chance. No, I'm a one-gulp meal for your dog. There you go. Well, I'm just uh, about to enjoy a Padron Damaso, which is a little different uh, flavor profile uh, for Padron. They brought this out about five years ago with a Connecticut Ecuadorian wrapper. First time they ever used a Connecticut Ecuadorian wrapper. A little bit different, more for those that like a, a milder-bodied uh, flavor, this is a very nice selection padrone. So I'm going to give uh, this one a light right now. And as I do, Colonel Ange, this is, you've been on the Cigar Dave show for about 22 years. We've always, every time we do a show, we've got a two-hour time constraint. We're jammed. We've got to get in all the different 
foods that you prepare, whether it's a live broadcast or if it's super snacks for Super Bowl, we've got to get everything in. So we really have never had the opportunity to have a relaxed, tranquil conversation. Because one of the questions I get is, how did Colonel Ange become the expert when it comes to grilling carnivore quality dead animal maneuvers? Well, that's a story that starts with uh, genetics. First of all, every uh, man in the uh, household, all the Puccios that go way back, all cook. Not every day. Not every day. Go back to the American Revolution. Uh, <laughs> or the Italian Revolution. The Italian Revolution. <laughs> yeah, it was after Mussolini. <laughs> now, they, when they first came here, it was my grandfather came in 1919. And uh, my grandfather on Sundays would be in the kitchen, and he would cook on Sundays. And my father followed that tradition. I mean, you've sampled some of Big Ange specialties. His stuff, Big Ange Burger. Ass, and, of course, the Big Ange Burger that he was making back in the late 50s before putting cheese inside ground meat was popular. He was doing it at the kitchen counter out in Alden, New York. So we learned a little bit from that. And, you know, pretty much self-taught, although I did have some professional training, and that was in the United States Navy. Anchors away, Colonel Ange. That's and I'm, right. Wait, I'm going to give you a long-ass snappy salute. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for your service, a veteran. I've seen the pictures to prove it. That's right. I was there. In fact, that's an interesting story because uh, what happened was I was drafted while I was in college. The Tet Offensive was just winding down in Vietnam. I had a cousin that came home. He was wounded, badly wounded, but uh, he survived. And he would just tell me horror stories. And I got my draft notice. I was a little bit leery about being a frontline inf infantry man. But, of course, you know, I wanted to serve my country. Right. A friend of mine suggested that uh, they were looking for recruits in the United States Navy. So I called the Navy office, and they said, listen, we got two openings, signalman and cook. So I told them, of course, signalman. So... I went down the next day, and when I got there, I was told by the uh, admiral that the uh, signalman job had already been taken, although he had put me down originally, and that I would be going to cook school after boot camp, which I did. And interesting story with that, while I was in boot camp, unbeknownst to me, because they did qualify me as a signalman during a war, the FBI came and did a background check so that I could get a security clearance. And one day in cook school, my chief petty officer came in and said, Puccio, is there any reason why you need a security clearance to cook? <laughs> <laughs> Sir, I had no, no idea. But yes, I am the only uh, cook in the history of the United States Navy to get a top security clearance so I can keep these recipes, I guess, close to my heart or close to my vest, however you want and to put it. And there's another thing, another note. Yes. In the event, the President of the United States, for every time the President travels, goes to restaurants, there is always, I believe, it's a Navy cook Yes. that is in the kitchen supervising everything to make sure nothing funny goes on. Well, and that's the greatest thing about it. You can talk to the Marines, and they'll tell you all kinds of bad, nasty things about uh, the swabbies that they have to travel with. But every one of them was lined up knee-deep uh, at the kitchen every morning when I was cooking for them. Because Absolutely. Because the, the best food in the uh, United States Armed Forces is on a ship, and I'll tell you why. You can't go out for pizza. That is correct. <laughs> Domino's doesn't deliver to the aircraft carriers. No, you can't do that. So I did learn. I did spend some time cooking there. Again, you know, home cook, 
self-taught that way. But the grilling end of it came uh, when I found out that my tastes weren't always the same as my family's tastes, and it was easier for me to take a grill. You could cook six different things at one time, like a short order cook, which I pretty much was when I was in the Navy, and I would do it on the grill. And since then, that's expanded. You know that. I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun, and uh, it uh, it's... I look at it this way. People say to me all the time, geez, you spend a great deal amount of time cooking. And I said, you're absolutely correct. For me, it's, it's a hobby. It's a love. It's something I really enjoy. And it's better than collecting stamps because general stamps taste like crap. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you'd rather be a grill master than a philatelist. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and for any betas that are listening, I doubt it, a philatelist is a stamp collector. Right. Big words for the betas. The alphas, no problem. We, we know what that is. But for the betas, they need a little remedial help when it comes to vocabulary. Correct. Colonel Ange, let me ask you, what were the type of dishes that you would cook on the ship? Because you're talking... Three meals a day plus snacks. It's a 24-hour operation, I would have to assume, because people on a ship are eating at different times of the day. Right, correct. And the ship I was stationed on the longest was the USS Missouri, and that was an assault craft. You know, the one where the, uh, the, the gate drops down and the assault crafts go on that. So we had a contingent of 1,300 Marines on board. So you had the Marines, plus we had about, I don't know, I would say seven, 800 uh, Navy personnel. So we were cooking for over 2,500 people every day. The mornings were uh, just a blur because what you have is a griddle that's lined up. It's about 20 foot long. You've got four guys set up and there's everything from grits to eggs to pancakes all the way down. Bacon, everything's going. But my favorite was when we got to spend time after the breakfast. Breakfast, again, it's a rush. But the dinners were always something that took, we took our time with and prepared. I mean, you know, you're on a ship. There's not a lot you can do. Uh, back in those days, uh, the big entertainment was they would put up a screen on the flight deck and everybody would just, you know, sit on the deck and watch a movie. Not much going on. They look forward to dinner. And what I enjoyed using was a 50-gallon steam-jacketed kettle. Now, this was a big stainless steel kettle. Imagine 50 gallons. This thing had steam that was inside the insulated walls. They would run it up all the way around so there'd be an even heat all the way around this thing. It was hot, but it was massive. And they had to have it up on a, um, on a, on a uh, metal uh, rack so that you could tilt it. They actually had a crank where you wind the crank and tilt it so you could get into it. And when we would cook on it, we would actually have a stool. You would stand on the stool and you would have a paddle. And you'd stick the paddle in, you'd mix everything. And my specialty back in those days, you might want to guess, was spaghetti and meatballs. And I would make the sauce in the 50-gallon steam-jacketed kettles. Uh, I was going to say that, uh, you know, most of the time you talk about making sauce, you put maybe a <laughs> can of or, or, or a bottle of ragu or prego or chefs from Buffalo, which you can't go wrong with. And, uh, you know, you put maybe some onions or some some meat sauce or whatever, but you're talking about 50 gallons of sauce. 50 gallons. Talk about a Sunday Or gravy. Soup. Wait, isn't the official name, if you're Italian, it's gravy. It's gravy if, you, if it's meat-based, and that's usually what we made. Yes, it was gravy, or the uh, southern Italians call it sugu. 
there is no tofu in, <laughs> in the sauce on a naval warship. No, no in, chance. No, in fact, uh, the quick story for the first time I ever made that. I came on board this ship. I'd only been there for a little bit. Sauce came up on the menu. So I asked for the recipe card. They brought it up and brought it to me, and I looked at this recipe card, and I wanted to cry. There were things that they were going to put on this sauce that normally people put on toast. There was cinnamon. There was, I, I don't know. There were just things I couldn't do. So I sent a card down to the ship's store. I had him bring up everything that I needed to make this sauce. So I'm in the middle. This sauce is done, and we're already starting to serve it up. In fact, the, uh, the captain's uh, uh, personal uh, people came down. Uh, these are just uh, uh, Navy personnel, and all they do all day long is cater to the officers upstairs. They already taken the food up to the officers. So the chief, who was from Louisiana, came down, and he saw what I did, and he took me from one side of that galley to the other. He said, boy, I don't know who you are or where you're from, but you don't mess with my recipes. I've been doing this for 27 years in this Navy, and I'm not going to have some runt back-ass boy <laughs> tell me how to make sauce now everybody in the kitchen's kind of shaking right because this guy was was he was really kind of a badass so in the middle of all this just as he's sitting over there trying to decide how he's going to punish me the uh there's a knock on the on the door we got an attention on deck and sure enough the captain's there captain's there with the first officer captain looks around the kitchen and he says uh stand at ease boys all right this is different who was it that made this spaghetti sauce? And my friend, the chief from Louisiana, said, "As that boy over there from Buffalo, someplace Yankee, New York, <laughs> and he's the one to screw with my recipe, Captain." And I apologize. The captain says, "I'm going to apologize. He says, That's the best damn sauce I've had since I set foot in the Navy." So I always am very grateful to Captain Cicatello. <laughs> Ah, there's a little connection there. (laughs) Captain Sicatello, I love my sauce. That chief just sit there and limped away. Listen, between a Cajun or an Italian making spaghetti sauce, you know every time where I'm going. I mean, you're not going to go with the Cajun guy. For gumbo, (laughs) a a shrimp jambalaya, you go with a Cajun guy. But everything else, go with an Italian. And, you know, talking about sauce, my grandmother, Grandma Ida, used to make uh, her gravy, it consisted of Heinz ketchup with some water. <laughs> but her matzo balls and her potato latkes and a brisket and her, her uh, and, and Nanny Ida's pastrami, you can't go wrong. No, no. In fact, we uh, did our best to try and duplicate that. You did. Pastrami. Great job. Thank that you. That was brought about five years ago. Yep. At, at uh, our Buffalo Pleasure Fest at the Buffalo Launch Club on Grand Island. That was... We, we got my grandmother's recipe, and you went through about five iterations to get that, and it was fabulous. Takes a while. Takes a while. But honestly, it was a great recipe. Uh, uh, Cigar Sister uh, did let me know that it needed a little bit more garlic. Yes, Kim Jong-Lin, as we say, <laughs> yes. as we call her. <laughs> so I've adjusted it since in honor of, uh, of Kim. So, yeah, no, it was great. But it is, that's a, that's a long process. I mean, if you do it right. I mean, you can, there's shortcuts, there's shortcuts to everything. I mean, you can buy chef's pasta sauce in a jar. And why not, if you're in a hurry. But. To make it right, to make it the way Grandma Ida did it, you had to do it. And it's about a full four- to six-week process. Gurkha Cigars has always been known for exquisite cigars, impeccable packaging. And Gurkha launched last summer the Gurkha Nicaragua Series, their first-ever 
Nicaraguan Puro. It uses an all-Nicaraguan tobacco blend. Top to bottom, a Corojo 99 wrapper over dual Corojo 99 binders and a Corojo 99 and Criollo 98 filler. What does that mean? You get medium to full-bodied taste, nice peppery notes, spicy finish. It is the Gurkha Nicaraguan Series 100% Nicaraguan Puro, 100% full-bodied flavor. Give the Gurkha Nicaraguan Series a try. Check out the entire Gurkha line at GurkhaCigars.com. Colonel Ange rejoins us from the Pooch Pit. Now, Colonel Ange, we were talking about you being a naval cook on board a ship. Now, let me ask you, I'm thinking you had, how many people did you say were on board? A thousand? Uh, more than that. Uh, a little over 2,000. 2,000. So I have got to believe that the refrigerators and the freezers must have been absolutely massive. How often? And you're at sea for what? Three, four, five weeks at a time, maybe? Yeah, oh, yeah. That The assault crafts, in fact, we were uh, ported out of uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico, and we were actually doing joint maneuvers with, you ready for this, Venezuelan Marines. Oh, that was in the days when Venezuela was an ally before they became Marxist, which this country is heading towards, but don't get me started on that. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we were, um, that... This the one I the story I told you about the sauce that was about a four week, little more than four week cruise. They picked us up on a chopper out of San Juan. In fact, that was a great uh, great evening too. They picked us up. We're in tents outside on a beach in San Juan, and the Marines they were running the the uh, choppers. Now this this ship I was on actually had a flight deck, but it was a VTL jet and a chopper that was on board this thing. So they had a, a deck for the chopper. And they had a Marine uh, that was running, a chief petty officer. And uh, this guy, uh, he could have had his time and his place, and he did when he decided to pick us up. So what he did is he waited till about 2 in the morning, landed the chopper, got us all up, uh, put us on that chopper. He did not close the gate. Now, the gate back then, you had two ways of doing it. You had a strap-down uh, uh, regular metal door that kept you out of the back of it, and you had the, uh, all I like to call it a net, and put the net. So he puts the net up, and then he takes the net down. He takes us up in the air. We went straight up, and then we went sideways, then we went the other sideways, then we went halfway upside down. It was supposed to be about a 10-minute flight. He made sure it lasted 20 minutes, and he landed us like a thunk on the deck where everybody was lined up because they knew at least 10% of us would be throwing up on the deck right. after the ride. Right. So everybody did. We landed, and those of us that got through, we come down, land on our knees, and that didn't get sick got applauded as we walked to our, our bunks. Little ritual, little initiation. Yes, sir. But now, how with with... Being at sea four, five, six weeks, what was the longest you were at sea? Five weeks. Five weeks. You must have massive provisions to yeah. restock. Mm. I mean, give us an idea of the quantities of food that would be delivered every four or five weeks when you were at, at port. Well, look at it this way. When you go shopping at your local grocery store, uh, you think you're going home with a lot when you take one of those great big carts and fill it. Everything that came on board on this ship were on pallets. Wow. I mean, pallets and pallets. There, were, there was probably about, I'm going to guess, on any given day, a ton of food and provisions that were on that ship. A ton. 
2,000 pounds? Yeah. You mean just to, what you would go through in a day? Uh, no, uh, 2,000 pounds would get us through about two weeks. Two weeks. So how would you, would they land a helicopter with provisions or how would they, how would it, they get you provisions if you weren't at port? Here's what we would do. Now we were on maneuvers, okay? So we were actually simulating what we would be doing if we had to do an, an assault landing right. somewhere near the Philippines on an island somewhere. So, by the way, the Philippines this time of year in August is fantastic. It's great. You can't go wrong. It's mosquitoes. Yeah. You'll be schwitzing. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a great deals at hotels in uh, in Manila. You can't go wrong. <laughs> so for me, it was June right before that, and it had just about everything you just described. In fact, what they did, as I told you, we were on tents and a beach. I mean, we were not in hotels waiting to get picked up. So when you're on maneuvers, the provisions come in by chopper. Yeah, there's no question about it. And again, they bring you what you might need right away and uh, the kind of supplies that uh, do go bad in a hurry. But, you know, the bulk of the stuff you get, you go into the port and it's frozen. I'm, I'm going to tell you, it's frozen. Your produce, uh, your dairy products, mm -hmm. that'll be flown in when you need it. Okay. But they won't touch that other stuff. It's frozen. It's in blocks. So meat, that's yeah, right. Meat, meat chicken, chicken, everything. fish, and you know you got the big cans of everything, right? right? I mean everything. All you know, all the 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 beans and and some of the vegetables. So that stuff's all downstairs, you know, and you have a dedicated uh, elevator to the galley. Because if you were doing this all day long and trying to bring it up down. You know, I mean, if you imagine being on a ship and coming down all those uh, small right. hallways with those. Forget it. Yeah. And every door on a ship, of course, as you know, is raised up so it can be locked and sealed so water can't get through in case of an emergency. So we had a dedicated elevator. And that, that's one of the reasons my boy from Louisiana got pissed at me, too, because he's got provision cards lined up. You put the provision cards together before you set sail. You submit these so that you know what you're going to need every day. I was going to ask you that. So it's not a standard order, the master cook, master chief, whatever. Who, who, who would order it? Who would be in charge of ordering the provisions? That would be my man, the guy that uh, that reamed me out there. He's the guy that sits... And in, what, was, what was his title? Uh, he was chief petty officer. Chief, so chief petty officer. So yeah. he would then... It wasn't a standard order. He would sit down with the provision cards, for example, and plan out the meals, what, for a week, two weeks? Yeah, no, for two weeks. Okay. You'd get them for at least two weeks, and then you'd check your ship's stores and whether or not you needed to have anything else brought in. But you had a a minimum of two weeks that was set aside and provided for by the pound so that, you know, you would not run out of food and you always have what you, ha what you needed for a recipe. So you knew when, that, when, when you put that provision in, you already knew what was going to be served for breakfast a week from Wednesday, dinner a week from Saturday, two weeks from to, to the very last day, that 14th day. You already had everything planned out already, every single meal, snack, whatever else beverages they would need. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's the only way you can do it. I mean, again, you know, you, you can't go out for pizza and you can't run to uh, the supermarket. I mean, you've got to have on board and be ready to fly with it. You can't go to the Naval Costco. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, I see people going to Costco with, you know, three giant truck, you know, like big... Uh, those those uh, not a shopping cart. They're those, those big trucks almost that you you push down that are flat, and you think, wow, that's a hell of a lot of food. But when you're talking about feeding 1,400 guys, you're talking on everything on pallets that is massive. So, would you sit down? Would how many people worked in the in the kitchen in the commissary? 
Oh, on this ship, we had a rotating staff of about 12. All right, so 12 to feed 13, 1,400 people. Yeah. I'm thinking you probably had 50, 60. Oh. You're talking about a very lean operation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody knew their job and everybody had to do it. A seven-day-a-week job. It's a, oh, yeah, seven days a week. There's no right. question about it. In fact, one of the beauties about being a, uh, a cook in the Navy, commissaryman, is now everybody on a ship <clears throat> has to stand a watch, right? You have to stand a watch. And, you know, that means 2 o'clock in the morning, the last watch relieves you, gives you the watch gear, gives you the badge, gives you the belt, and you're now on watch. Well, the thing is, cooks never stood a watch. Now, this isn't a big secret, but maybe I'm giving it away for a few that didn't know this. But we never stood watches because all we'd have to do is find out who... You know, when we had a watch, there was a waiting list of guys coming to us saying, hey, man, one extra steak, I got your watch tonight. Really? <laughs> oh, yes. So they would ration. You couldn't have seconds. It's, there was ones. That was it. it. One steak. Really? So that's how it would work. That's how it worked. work. That's I, a beautiful thing. guy wanted to stand my watch. I just made sure that at dinner time there was one extra steak. We take that steak, wrap it in a napkin, toss it underneath the other steak, and off he'd go. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I slept like a baby. That is American capitalism ingenuity at its finest <laughs> yes it is no question about it so you would prepare the meals you would already know what was being served right for those 14 days yeah, absolutely you have 12 people that was it mm -hmm. all right so was everybody on duty at the same time or was it staggered did you have six in the kitchen because i would think that breakfast would start you'd start preparing breakfast at what time four four a.m yep what time was breakfast served five Five, and you can't have 14 people all at once. It would be what, throughout a three, four-hour period? Yeah, they'd start showing up a little bit before 5, and they would finish off around 8 o'clock. Okay, so you have to start working. That's all you need is 4 a.m.? Mm -hmm. One hour mm -hmm. to prepare the, all the eggs? And... For breakfast, yeah, because all that stuff is... All that stuff is short order cook stuff. So, I mean, you go into a diner right now and it's, you put in your order. Ten minutes later, you got it. Well, wait, so it wasn't a buffet style? It was cooked to order? It's cooked to order. Really? Oh, yeah. So how many people at one time would be sitting uh, at, a, at a session? Uh, we would have about, I would say, 75, 100 that could so fit. they would t you where they go through a line yes. get their order oh yeah you line them up they come there we're, we're sitting over there with uh with our griddles in front of us some guy would come through now let's say this way we did have uh, uh hot pans with scrambled eggs right we had hot pans okay with eggs so that they and were pancakes up. pancakes i mean that's, that's what i meant so most of that would already be prepared yes we did a bunch of that but if some guy came through and he said listen you know what uh, tossed it. I would give me some of the hash browns with an egg. Give me an egg and uh, give me hash browns and toss an egg in it. You'd do it for him. You know, you'd just sit there, take the hash browns, put them down, crack an egg, scramble them up real quick, and hand them to him as he moved along. So, being a visiting general, I would come through the line oh, no. at 7 a.m. and say, uh, All right, uh, by the way, what was your, when you were uh, honorably discharged, what was your last rank? Uh, I was a petty officer. All right, so petty officer, uh, petty officer Colonel Ange. Yes. I, uh, I would like, uh, six egg whites. I don't want any butter, just a little bit of the spray, the yeah. uh, Pam spray. I want a little bit of cheddar and some grilled onions in there. And if you have some Nova and a scooped out triple toasted bagel, that would be great. You would tell me? Well, I wouldn't have to tell you because <laughs> the officers had their own mess. Oh, they did? Oh, yes. 
Aha. Uh, the officers had their own mess. Remember I told you about the guys that came down and picked up They're the right. spaghetti? Yep. Well, they had a small mess operation that just uh, fed the uh, officers. And what they would do, it was a very small galley. It was right off the officers' quarters. And what would happen was they didn't eat what we ate every day. What they would do is if there was something on the menu that was a specialty item, like if we were doing spaghetti or we were doing steaks or something, of course that would go up. But, you know, if it was cream chip beef on toast, they weren't eating it. I mean, they had people in their own galley putting together their food for them every day. They would only come down to take the specialty items. So I would say that the officers ate from our mess one meal a day. Now, the 12 people in the kitchen that you work with, total yes. of 12, would mm-hmm. they also do the officer's mess, or is that mm-hmm. a separate crew? No, that was a separate crew. That was a separate galley, and they these are the, uh, I can't remember the uh, commission rate that they were, but what these guys did was, they were valets. They were valets, and they took care of the officers. How many, how many valets were there? Oh, on the last ship I was on, there were six. Six. Yeah, because we had an officer staff of 12. 12 officers, six valets? Yes, sir. I like that <laughs> ratio of valet to officers. So, now, of course. Yeah, I should have gone to Annapolis. You're right. Being, being a general, <laughs> Colonel Ange, uh, I would have two valets just for me, okay? Yeah, yeah. I, would, I would have one to take care of all my, my dietary needs. Then I'd have another one for all my... I would say my cigars and spirit needs. Maybe I need three, three to make sure my, you know, my clothes are properly folded, laundered, the bed is made. That's a good day. That's a good a deal. Yeah, in fact, uh, they did have a pretty good deal. That was the only place on board ship that actually uh, served alcohol. That was the officers' quarters. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, and uh, I, we've got some alcohol here that we'll break open maybe in the next segment that we're doing because this segment of Bold Alpha. We're talking with Colonel Ange, talking about the background, how he became a renowned, not only gourmet cook, but also master griller, master smoker. And then we'll get into grilling and smoking and what you can do to create your own type of pooch pit, your, I would say, grilling man area, alpha area, if you will. So, Colonel, let me ask you this. You have the separate mess for the officers. Yes. We just talked about that you would make items to order, but when you would be making those eggs that were in the pans, scrambled eggs, you've got, uh, what, I was scrambled eggs, pancakes, what, hash browns, bacon? That grits. Kind of Gr- grits. Got to have gotta those have grits. grits. Now, how, how many, cra- you'd have to crack those eggs, or did you buy them in the carton where you just pour them in? No. Fresh eggs. Fresh eggs. Yeah. That's a lot of cracking. Yeah, it really is. It really is. A lot is. of cracking. So how many eggs would you go through? With you have 1,400 shipmates on board. Mm. How many eggs would you go through on a daily basis? Oh, I've got to say probably 50 dozen. That's it? Yeah. Yeah, because you got to remember. Like 600 eggs, that's all? Yeah, it's, it's 600 eggs. You know, maybe a little more than that. But see, the other thing was besides the eggs. I mean, the big, the honest, the thing that went biggest at breakfast was grits. Really? Yeah. And um, you do that in a fifty-gallon. Yes. And how long would you? You'd have to put it in the water, yep. stir it, and yep. how long of a process was that? It's only about twenty minutes to cook it, 
and it's probably another 15 with the logistics because it really is a pain in the neck. But, I mean, we had guys that would do nothing all day, all morning long, from 5 o'clock until 8 o'clock with a big scoop, scooping into 50-gallon jacket kettle and filling hot pans and really? dropping them in the rack with grits. Those grits were incredible. Oh, we, I don't know how many pounds, but we would we definitely go through that 50-gallon thing every morning. Now, did you have dishwashing machines on board? Yes. Or? So you did have that. So yes. that, that helped. Uh, now, but the kettle, like, you can't put in a dishwasher. How do you clean that? Uh, <laughs> you get a bigger <laughs> stool. <laughs> you tilt it down. Oh, And man. you crawl in, and you put a bucket underneath it, and uh, you clean it. I mean... That's one of the things that uh, you do learn, and I have to say, you learn, you learn, and you relearn. I mean, that galley was, after every meal, it was pristine. I mean, we really cleaned right. it inside and out. It was one of the cleanest places that you'd be on in that ship. So you get in at 4 a.m., last meal served about 8 a.m. What happens at 8 a.m.? Cleanup begins? Yeah, 8 a.m., we're cleaning up for about two hours. In two hours, we can get that galley done with uh, a dozen guys, and then, of course, we start lunch. All right, let's hold it right there. When we come back, we'll talk lunch on board a 1,400-man naval ship. One of the premier cigar manufacturers, cigar blenders, cigar tobacco growers, A.J. Fernandez. Based in Nicaragua, has farms all over the country. Magnificent factory, produces excellent cigars, huge portfolio. One of the brands that he released, the New World Oscuro by A.J. Fernandez, a full-flavored powerhouse. It is a beast of a cigar. Beast in a good way, meaning you're going to get a lot of flavor, a lot of zestiness, a lot of richness, a ton of spice, dark Nicaraguan Oscuro wrapper, Jalapa binder, the filler from three regions in Nicaragua, Condega, Esteli, and Ometepe. What's special about Ometepe? It's a volcanic island. There was a volcano right on the island, and consequently the lava that flowed out of that uh, that 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 area, that volcano, yielded incredible richness to the soil. Great natural fertilizer, and it produces an incredible taste. So if you're looking for a cigar that is loaded with richness, loaded with spice, loaded with flavor, that's box-pressed, the New World Oscuro by A.J. Fernandez. You can't go wrong. And in fact, it also comes in a Connecticut and a Cameroon. And the Cameroon New World is the Cigar Dave Officers Club selection for August. So all members will be receiving three fantastic New World Cameroons. Very difficult wrapper to work with. Very tough wrapper to obtain, but it yields an incredible taste. So if you're looking for a medium-flavored cigar with some nice spiciness, sweetness, the New World Cameroon, if you want a full-flavored box-press powerhouse, the New World Oscuro by A.J. Fernandez, ajfcigars.com. Colonel Ange breakfast wraps up 8 o'clock, two hours to clean, 10 a.m. Now the second meal of the day, Lunch. Lunch. Let's talk about how you, what would you make for lunch? When would that process begin and end? Go through all the logistics. Because when you think about this, people think it's just, you know, men on ships. You don't realize the tremendous logistics that are involved, whether it's food or fuel or water or anything. I mean, it's, it's a massive logistics operation. Yeah, it really is. It really is. In fact, 
it's it's obviously it's more difficult on a ship because you got a confined space and you got a lot, especially when you have a contingent on board. Now, just so everybody knows that assault craft isn't always filled with Marines. Okay, so there are times, when, especially when you're in port, there's not a Marine on it. But uh, you do learn to uh, to hump and, and get this food out. You learn to hump, yes. Yeah, and you right. bring the broads on board. <laughs> yeah. That's what you don't need to learn to hump. I guarantee you, those naval officers and those 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 uh, members of the navy, they didn't need to learn how to hump. They already knew how to hump. They got a lot of practice in port. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, yeah. But you learn you really learn how to move and to get that stuff out really quick. Uh, and then lunch was lunch. I mean, it could mean any. Thing. I mean, a lot of times it was beans and franks. Uh, you know, it could be sandwiches or not really. Yeah. Oh yeah. Sandwiches? No, yeah. Okay. No, no, we did sandwiches. We had a lot of hot sandwiches. I mean, we right. we would grill ham and cheese all the time. I mean, because you could sit there on those griddles and you could turn out a hundred uh, grilled ham and cheese sandwiches. And, and you'd put them in the chafing trays, or yeah. they would. Okay. Yep. So what else would you serve? So what somebody comes through, what would we find on a naval ship for lunch in the chafing trays? Well, you'd always find some sort of vegetables. Okay. okay. So there was always something. There was black eyed peas. There was beans. Right. There was corn. Uh, you'd always have some fresh uh, fruit. And, uh, you know, uh, it was, well, I say fresh fruit. It was fruit usually from a can, so it's not fresh fruit, but you would have fruit that was in one of the chafing dishes that you could uh, spoon out. And uh, But I'll tell you, big things were baked beans, uh, macaroni and cheese. I mean, things, soups, stews. I mean, there were a lot of those things because you could make those in big batches and put them into the uh, chafing dishes, the, the hot trays, and people could come through and just scoop them. So there was all, it was never a huge meal. In fact, lunch was a little bit different because you didn't have, there were guys on that ship, depending on what they did, that didn't eat lunch because they couldn't eat lunch, just given the logistics when you were on maneuvers. You have to be at a certain place at a certain time. So if in the middle of the day you're doing the maneuvers, you've got guys that are bosuns that are trying to keep the uh, the landing deck clear. They're right. not coming down. They don't they don't blow a whistle and say you right. get 30 minutes for right. lunch. You got to right. stand there and do it. So lunch wasn't as big. We didn't get everybody at once. Uh, I would say maybe half. But then again. Dinner time, you get everybody back. Everybody was back. All right, so lunchtime was served until what time? Two o'clock? Two o'clock. Two o'clock. Then two hours to clean. Two hours to clean. All right, four o'clock, then you begin dinner. Yep, four o'clock is dinner. Dinner go till about, oh, six, you know. And then what you'd always have is there was always contingent of guys that just had to work at a certain hour at a certain time. I mean, you know, the guys that worked uh, with the uh, with the jet, with the VTL, I mean, they would have, if that thing... That's the vertical takeoff and landing. Yes, yeah. Right. I mean, you have that thing going. If that thing was in use during the day, that thing had to be all broken down and gone through. I mean, you're a pilot. You can understand what, what you got to go, especially one of those. I mean, they're a very complicated machine. So they may not eat until 10. So what would happen is we would get a list of the number of people that were on whatever assignment they were doing and when they would be able to eat. And we would make sure that there was at least two guys in the galley that could either reheat or make some food for maybe another one or two hundred guys at ten o'clock at night. So you always have to have food available. Yes. When did you sleep? Well, for the most part, uh, you know, unless you had 
part of our watch, I wouldn't call it watch, but part of our extended duty would be the shift that you took to take care of the people that worked later. Okay. okay. So if that was the case, you could break out and they wouldn't keep you uh, to do the cleaning. You could uh, go to your rack and uh, get some sleep at 4 o'clock in the afternoon instead of cleaning up after dinner if you were going to cook later. And if you worked the normal shift, you'd be done by 7 o'clock, and that was it. I mean, go to the flight Until deck. 4 a.m. Until 4 a.m. All right, so but with 12 guys, you can't have more than one or two really out. Don't you need all 12? You need all 12 for the big meals, yes. Okay, so the big meals are what, breakfast, dinner? Breakfast and dinner. All right, so what would you start working on dinner at 4 o'clock? Yes. All right, that's served from what, 5 o'clock till 8 o'clock? 7. 5 to 7. Yeah. What would be, give us an average uh, normal dinner on board the ship? Oh, that ranged from everything. I mean, a lot of Salisbury steaks. Salisbury steaks. <laughs> Were those already, did you have to make the steak or it already pre prepared already? No, we had to make it. You I made mean, it? Yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, again, you're breaking out pro, uh, frozen provisions in the morning. So you know what's coming up, and you're going to have to make that for dinner. But, I mean, you know, you'd be Salisbury steaks. Again, stews was another big thing. Beef stew. These guys right. love beef stew. Right. Um, you know, occasionally we would do something like uh, jambalaya. Okay. You know, uh, that was a rare occasion. But I'll, I'll tell you, a lot of pasta dishes because right. that stuff fills you up in a hurry. Right. But there was always meat at every meal. Right. You know, so, again, you know, we would do uh, pork chops. Pork right. chops was another big thing. Right. They weren't big. They're only like the one-inch right, right, right. cuts. But they're frozen. They defrost quick, and you can toss those on a grill. So we would do a bunch of those. And, again, there was always beans, mashed potatoes. We made. In the vat, in the 50-gallon yeah. drum. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, how did you cook the steaks? On the grill? Yep. Uh, yeah, in a griddle. Were there on the griddle? Were there ovens in the? Oh, yeah, of course. Plenty yep. of big ovens. Yeah, we had. Um, I'll tell you how many ovens. There were four ovens. Uh, they were about twice the size of your normal oven you'd see in a kitchen, and that's really all you needed. They were maybe about thirty-six inches deep. So, I mean, you're talking three foot of space and probably four foot across, and you got three to four, uh, four shelves, depending on what you're cooking in there. But, yeah, I mean, we cook chicken. If we were going to do chicken parts for some reason, we would. But, I mean, we cook, we, you know, let me put it to you this way. At During breakfast, not all 12 guys were serving and cooking breakfast. There would be two or three that would already be loading 100 chickens into the ovens on big sheet trays right so that they would be ready for because dinner. it would take what 30 minutes uh for the chickens it would take about an hour and 30 oh, an hour minutes. an hour and 30 minutes yeah. like what 350 something yeah. like that yeah about so that's a long time so how many chickens would go in each oven uh you could probably put three, six, nine, i'm gonna guess a dozen chickens in an whole chickens yeah all right and then you would cut them up put them in the chafing dishes yeah so it's a lot of logistical work in a very small area mm. And you make it go. Yep. And the, it's essential for the morale on the ship to have good food. Oh, that's what makes the ship go. It, honestly, it is. Again, what? You know, we repeat, you can't order pizza. You mm -hmm. don't have much else going on. I mean, there's no television. I mean, basically what they did, and there you're in the middle of the ocean. Right. The, the, no internet, no iPhones, none of that right. stuff. I mean, entertainment was pretty much playing cards. Right. And every night they would have a movie on the flight deck. Every right. night. It's not an easy job, no question about it, and it's very different because you really are isolated on this. It's a massive ship, yeah. but you look at the vast ocean, 
you're still as a minnow in that entire entire ocean. So it's very everything is it's like a mini city, and it's very confined. It's not like you go back to your quarters and you've got a nice hotel room. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about probably a six foot by about uh, you know thirty inch bunk. That's it. Yeah, in fact, it's pretty funny. I remember the uh, first time I came on board that ship, I had my sea bag and I took my. Uh, uh, sea bag and i tossed it on the bunk and one of my other southern buddies looked at me and he said boy you better find another space for that sea bag because you ain't gonna have no place to sleep that's all space you got that's (laughs) it that's it it was a rude awakening (laughs) yeah no you really do i mean it's different i mean i was shore based for a while in my original cooking i worked at the naval training center in san diego now that you've got a big kitchen yeah it's 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 paradise compared to being on a ship kitchen yeah there were probably ten thousand guys that came through the kitchen there but i mean that was massive right that was just massive and then you had uh your quarters you had a bunk i mean you had space again going on a ship is a whole different thing I mean, it's an experience. It really is. But you really learn, and uh, you learn to be efficient, and that's what they teach you. In fact, they started that in boot camp. They teach you to be very efficient and how to get along with with minimal supplies, minimal clothes, uh, small spaces to store. So you, it's it's minimalist training at the earliest when you're in boot camp, and then that carries on when you're on the ship. But, you know, the other thing that they do teach you is that – Everybody has to be ready to help out in any situation and emergency. I mean, when I was in boot, they didn't just, you know, march us around with uh, rifles. I mean, we had all of that. Right. There's very little need for a bunch of Navy men learning how to shoot automatic weapons. There was more need for us to learn, you know, how to lock doors and lock down if there was water. Right. Uh, the other big thing that we learned, which was, was a lot of fun, is... Uh, that there really is no place to go if there's a fire. So what you have to learn is how to survive. There's a fire on board, which included the emergency steps, you're locking doors and doing it. But one of the ways that they trained us is they had a uh, small metal building. In the middle of that metal building was a a tub. It was about three feet off the ground. I'm going to guess it was about, oh, four foot in diameter. And there was uh, fuel oil in it. And what they would do is in boot camp to get you used to it and what you'd have to do in a case of an emergency, they would bring you in and they would light the fuel oil in that tank. They'd, you would surround that tank. They would lock all the lock. They'd close the doors right. and then they would make you recite your general orders wow. while the smoke was filling. A lot of pressure. A lot of pressure. You had to stand there and do it. Now, what they taught you, of course, is that the air was about two inches off the ground. Right. But they wanted to keep you standing up for as long as you can. So until the chief petty officer told you you could get down, if you did on your own, if you gave up and just couldn't do it, put your nose down, you would have to go outside. Everybody Everybody else, when he said, okay, get down, got their air and got out, the persons that didn't would have to go and lay out front of the door as a door mat and then they would line up these guys and the other recruits would walk, walk over, over them yeah. to get into the tank but you know the moral of the story is of course they don't want you panicking if there's a fire right. training and preparation yes it's all so it is. what happens and that's the key whether it is on board a ship whether it's on an airplane whatever it happens to be whatever the profession even medicine uh surgeon you've got to be prepared because not every it's it i always say this and you know I'm a, I'm a pilot, Colonel Ange. Of course. And flown with me many times. Knowing 
how to fly the plane is easy. Knowing what to do when something goes wrong is when you really earn your your stripes. Correct. And that is really the same thing on board a ship. So when everything's going hunky-dory, it's great. But if something happens, you've got to be prepared and be ready. Correct. Yeah. Camacho has one of the most unique portfolios of cigars. Their slogan is Live Loud. Cigars with loads of flavor, loads of taste, incredible complexity. And the brand new Camacho Nicaragua fits in perfectly to the Camacho portfolio. Forged in fire. Forged in volcanic soil. Beautifully rolled, the new Camacho Nicaragua features full frontal flavor. Subtle sweetness, spiciness, oaky flavors, three beautiful sizes. A Robusto, a Toro, and a Gran Churchill. Uses an Ecuadorian wrapper, Honduran binder, Three filler blend from Nicaragua, Honduras, and the Dominican Republic. What you get with Camacho Nicaragua is a spicy, earthy, robust tasting cigar. On a scale of one to ten, I would say this is a seven. It's medium plus, medium, medium plus, slightly full, but it is a beautiful cigar to add to your repertoire. The Camacho Nicaragua, available now on retailers or at DavidoffGeneva.com. So now we've learned what it's like to be an on-board petty officer cook feeding 1,400 uh, naval uh, Navy men on board the ship. What was the biggest? How, how many years did you do that? Uh, I uh, After active duty, I was on active duty for a year, and then I spent another six in the reserve. So uh, once a month every year, I would go on and uh, train. And where did you train? Uh, several places, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, primarily. Okay. So on board a ship for a year, how long did it take you to get adjusted to being in that confined setting, working that really just a, almost continually, it's really a 24 hour job. You can say you go and get sleep, maybe you get uh, five, six, seven hours, but it's really a 24 hour a day deal. How long did it take you to get adjusted? Well, you know, I guess it's, uh, it's individuals everybody's got their own uh their own metabolism their own mindset of how they're going to get through it uh i have to say that there were a lot of very poor men on that ship that came from very stark dire backgrounds and honestly the fact that they had clean new clothes and three meals every day i think they would have lived in a cage let alone a ship so, I mean, there were a lot of guys that just appreciated the fact that they had a clean place and food and clothes. But for me personally, it was a bit of an adjustment. You have to remember, everybody sees the uh, war movies with right. John Wayne, and uh, these guys are all in their 40s and 50s. That's not what's on no. board. No. I was 19 years old. I'm going to guess the average age on board that ship, including the Marines, was probably in the early 20s. And, uh, you know, one thing is, I guess it's a little bit easier for you when you're a little bit younger. Uh, uh, but it does take a little while. I, you know, the quarters and the logistics uh, are not as hard to come to grips with as is learning that there, is a ru- there are rules and there's authority and there's a reason why they're there and why they're in place and uh, adjusting to the fact that even if you think something doesn't make sense to do it because someone smarter than you figured it out probably 20 years ago. 
and when everybody comes on board, no matter what their socioeconomic background, you're all bonded. You're all on the same team. And I've got to believe that everybody, no matter where they're from, no matter what their race, what their religion, what their background is, everybody really becomes one giant family on board that ship. You have no choice. No, that, it, exactly right. I mean, you hear about it all the time in sports, how everybody, the team is their Believe me. You know, again, I've never been on the ground with a uh, with a, a bunch of guys carrying rifles in the jungle, and I can imagine that's an even tighter right. family because you really your Absolutely. lives depend on it. But honestly, you know that you said it yourself. You got a dozen guys, you got fifteen hundred people to cook for. Everybody knows that if they they're slacking off, they're hurting their buddy. Right. And nobody wanted to do that. We were. I'll tell you, the, the galley crew was a very tight crew, as were the bosuns, as were the uh, communications. I mean, you learn to support your uh, your shipmates and to run it. I mean, you learn to take great pride in what you're doing on that ship. And honestly, I mean, it, it showed. It showed in the quality of the meals. It showed in how clean that kitchen was. And everybody took pride in it, and we all helped each other. It was a great group. What did you enjoy most about your service on board? What did you like least? Uh, okay, liking least, given my background, was the authority. I mean, it took a long time for me to learn how to hold my tongue. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I got in trouble quite a few times for that. So that was probably the most difficult. But again, after a while, you learn somebody smarter than you figured this out. There's a reason. Okay. Uh, that was the most difficult. I think the best part of it was, which you mentioned before, I think it's the camaraderie. I mean, honestly... It was just a pleasure to work with these guys every day, you know? I mean, everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew their families, their moms. I mean, they talked about where they were from and background. You'd hear interesting stories. I mean, you got to figure a 19-year-old kid that never left Buffalo, New York, is now on board a ship with people from all over the country, hell, halfway around the world, and you would hear their stories and their backgrounds, and it was really interesting. So where did you travel to on board the Missouri? The Missouri was ported out of, uh, I guess, well, its main dock was Norfolk, uh, okay. but the maneuvers that I were on when I was on and off it, we were porting out of San Juan and then Port Everglades, Florida. Sure. Yeah, so we would go into Port Everglades. In fact, it was nice because that uh, captain I told you about, Santello, he remembered me when we ported into Everglades, and uh, we had uh, nine days in Everglades before we ported out again. And uh, he went to the chief petty officer and uh, made him eat a little bit of crow. The chief petty officer came to me and told me that he got word from the captain that I wasn't going to need to stand watch and that I had seven days in Everglades and told me to take off. So the captain gave me seven days. Really? Yeah, it was great. Very nice. And when you left, what year did you, uh, were you honorably discharged? Oh, boy, that would have to be 1978. Okay, so you were 19 going in. Yes. You were, what, about 21 when you were honorably discharged. Mm -hmm. And then you come back to Buffalo? Yes. Come back to Buffalo. And tell us uh, where your career took you from there. I already know that, but I think people would be fascinated. Well, uh, you know what? I knocked around in the automobile business for a while because just like anybody else, you're still a kid and you're looking for some place to work. I was uh, going back to, because uh, I got drafted out of college, so I was going to college at night, but I had to support myself. So I knocked around a lot of uh, automobile dealerships. I mean, I did work in there. I was a parts manager for about four different uh, dealerships. 
And then I got into the insurance game, uh, the claims end, which I know you know, went for work for a wonderful family, the Papa family. Absolutely. May Frank Papa rest in peace and his son, Gary, who was one of my mentors. And Frank was a real mensch, a real gentleman. Yes, absolutely. I could. Family-owned company and... Curlange, we always talk about this. There is something very special when you work in a family-owned company because they make you part of their family. Absolutely. I mean, I did work for Hartford Insurance for a company. Right. And honestly, you were I, I felt more like a family when I was in the Navy than I did working for Hartford Insurance. You were pretty much a number there. And you were a claims adjuster there? Yes, I was. Okay, so you were a licensed adjuster. Yes. And then Frank Papa from National Fire Adjusting, a very well-known uh, adjusting firm in Buffalo and throughout the country, the East, and the country, he approaches you? Yes. Uh, it was especially end of the claims business. Okay, When I was working for Hartford, of course, I worked for the policy, or I worked for the insurance company. Okay, So this is the adjuster that comes to your house or comes to your business when you have a loss. But what Frank Papa's firm is, is a public adjusting firm. In other words, we work for the insured, for the policyholder. So actually, we're the guys going to battle with the insurance company adjuster to try and make sure that your claim is, uh, is uh, settled fairly. And you represent the owner of the properties? Correct. Whether it's a residence, whether it is a commercial, it's, uh, it's an office building, you represent them to make sure that the insurance companies, let's say you've got a million dollars of coverage on a commercial building, and there's a fire, the insurance adjuster comes in and says, okay, we say it's 350000 of damage, and you come in and say, not so fast, my friend. <laughs> you say, wait a minute, you're forgetting this roof costs X. The inventory here is, is worth this. You're not calculating the cost of these windows or these electric doors. So you actually go through and represent the owner of the building to negotiate a settlement and you get a fee from the owner of the building. That's correct. That's how it works. I mean, it, people, you have to remember, I mean, everybody's got an insurance policy. I probably, most of the people listening now have never really looked at it. And maybe they've seen the sheet of paper that they get once a year that says that they've got it. But go ahead and get a copy of the policy and take a look at it. If it's less than 100 pages, I'd be surprised. And I would be even more surprised if anybody's ever read it from end to end and right. you had an idea what it says. Well, Colonel Enns, you've been very beneficial to me on several fronts because, number one, whenever I do my homeowners and my windstorm and my excess flood, you already you already tell me you need this, 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 and this, and here are the companies to go with, which I did. I took your recommendations, and they were great. And when um, Cigar Mother, Cigar Father, Dr. Z, had a little fire <laughs> in their garage, got to yes. be about 17, 18 years ago, yeah. they were actually having some pipes in the garage. There were some, I think they were hot water pipes, and the welder had apparently welded, and my father comes back or gets a call that uh, there's a fire, and he happens to see the dog outside, and luckily somebody I work with at WGRZ, Harvey Marshall, happened to see it and called the fire department and stayed there. And I called him and thanked him, and I worked with Harvey many, many years ago. But I remember calling you and said, there's a fire. And before, I, as soon as I called you, you said, no problem, I'll head over. And my father called me and he said... The fire department came in. They came into the kitchen because they wanted they had to knock down the door to make sure there was no fire coming in. They saw the invoice from the welder. They went and looked, and they said, "We know exactly, doctor, how the fire started. The welder, some of his, some of the the little ash or the little uh, sparks or whatever, ended up igniting something. And not only did you represent them." But you also said, here's who you got to talk to, Captain Paul Bolani from Colvin <laughs> Cleaners, to get the drapes because there was smoke 
smell all right. over the place. And here's the contractor, and they redid it better than it was new. Ah, that's great. Uh, it was a pleasure working for them. And, and you know what? That's how it works. Honestly, I'm not saying that insurance companies are going to there to teach you, but it's a business. And their job, which was my job for nine years at Hartford Insurance, was to try and settle a loss, but to save money. And, uh, you know, it's a good thing they're public adjusters because, honestly, you get you pay a premium, you should get paid what you're owed. And I believe you were only doing, NFA was only doing commercial back then, even though they started doing residential, but you did it as a favor. So many thanks, Colonel Ange, from 17, 18 years ago. And my father would always say, Colonel Ange, he took care of everything. He came in, bing, bang, boom, <laughs> and everything turned out great. And so you got into the fire adjusting business, and you still, even though you're semi-retired, I say, yes, you still... Uh, work, what, several days a week for National Fire Justice? Well, in some way, shape, or form, I'm at least involved five days a week five at days a minimum. A week. Uh, actual time in the office is a couple of days a week. But, yeah, I'm down to about half the hours that I used to spend. They won't let you retire. Ronnie Papa will not let you retire That's for okay. good reason. Now, you, I understand, this is this is from what I hear, that every morning you're up at, what, 4 a.m.? Uh, up a little before that. But, yeah, I start working around 4.30. And uh, you find out where the fires were. And bird dog, and then you get your guys because you have the adjusters that go out. And in many instances, because NFA is so well known, the owners of the buildings call you. But now you're national, so you know what's going on really across the country. You've worked hurricanes and tornadoes, but uh, you get up at three, three thirty, and then what happens? You find you call around to see where the fires were yeah well the way it works is we already have people on the payroll that let us know about that we have people that actually listen and report this and then of course there's news that i uh, i skim the news i watch the news uh on television i get all this information ahead of time yeah maybe my job primarily in the morning is to collect the information on the fires try and ascertain the ownership and then look for who in the corporation would be the best fit to go to that particular loss uh, and explain NFA services and uh, basically solicit the loss to see if they need our help. And you've been doing that how many years now? Oh, boy. I started insurance at Hartford in 1977, and then in 1985 I went to work for uh, uh, National Fire Justice. 35 years. 35 years. Yeah. Still going strong. Yeah, well, I don't know about strong, but I'm going. <laughs> 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 All right, on the next edition of Bold Alpha, and this is great, Colonel Ange, because we have so many people that say they know you from the Cigar Dave show over the last 20-some-odd years, and they want to know, how'd you, how'd you get in touch with Colonel Ange? How did, how did he become the colonel in charge of the grilling maneuvers on the show? And so on the next episode, next edition of Bold Alpha, we'll talk about how Colonel Ange and I met and how he became an integral part of the Cigar Dave show and now Bold Alpha when it comes to grilling and delicacy maneuvers. So hope you enjoyed today's episode of Bold Alpha where we talk alpha male lifestyle conversational maneuvers and of course unabashed commentary. Alpha Dave, the general alpha male in chief. Colonel Ange will pick it up on the next episode of Bold Alpha.